The Old Testament lesson for the first Sunday in Advent is from Jeremiah, chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. This is the word of the Lord. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Those are the words that ended the parable last week. The parable of the ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come to the wedding feast. Watch, therefore, because those ten virgins, those ten bridesmaids, they all fell asleep. And five of them, being foolish, forgot to bring any extra oil for their lamps. It was a word of warning to end the church year last week. Make sure that you have enough oil. Fill your flasks so that your lamps can burn brightly. Watch and stay awake. Be ready. The church year ends with a word of warning, but the season of Advent begins the church year in a different way, with great hope. That for you who are waiting eagerly, looking forward to the return of your bridegroom, he will indeed come. The waiting is at times long. The waiting is at times wearisome. And like those ten bridesmaids, we grow drowsy, and we so easily fall asleep. We grow weary of the things of this life, and we look forward to that day when Christ will return and rescue us from everything that has gone wrong in our flesh and in the world around us. Today's message is one of hope. The day is coming. The day is coming. It is surely drawing near when Christ will return to be your king. Behold, they said as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. Now it's important to say a few things about kings because we so easily have a false impression of what kind of a king Jesus is going to be. So let's start with the really obvious. Jesus is not a bad king. But it's important to know what makes for a bad king. What is it that a king does that makes him terrible? A bad king is the kind of king who does not rule in justice and righteousness. Those are the two keys to the job description of a king, justice and righteousness. He is to make sure that everyone gets his due and that goodness flourishes. That's what a good king is supposed to do. He's not supposed to rule on the basis of self-interest, whatever it is that makes him comfortable or happy. He's not supposed to rule on the basis of expedience, whatever is simplest or easiest. He's not supposed to compromise. He's not supposed to bend to the whims of the people. He's not supposed to be concerned about popular opinion or his approval rating. He's supposed to care about justice. He's supposed to care about righteousness. So the worst kings in the world are those who are corrupt. That is, they take bribes. They sell justice for money or for favors. They serve their own bellies rather than the interests of the people they are supposed to serve. They leave room for their own wickedness and so allow wickedness into their kingdom. 
The Bible is full of declamations against wicked kings. The kinds of things that they do leave orphans and widows exposed. The kings are supposed to protect orphans and widows, those who have no one to protect them. Bad kings do not care. Instead, they allow the wicked to prosper. There's a couple of examples that are really helpful from the scriptures. Examples that have to do, first of all, with things that pertain to Christmas. So you know about the wicked king, Herod. What did he do after he found out Jesus had been born in Bethlehem and that Jesus was to be a king? He sent his soldiers and murdered all of the baby boys in Bethlehem. What a wicked king he was. And then his son, maybe you know this story as well, his son, Herod Antipas, later arrested John the Baptist because John the Baptist had called him out for his sin. He had taken his brother's wife. He had taken her to be his own wife. He had stolen another man's wife. And John the Baptist called him out on his sin, so he arrested him. And then later, because he was so pleased by the dancing of a young girl, he offered to chop off John's head. What a wicked king Herod was. It's easy to see. You can see so clearly when a king rules in wickedness, when he lets justice and righteousness go by the wayside. You can see. You can see when he is serving his own interest. A good king is completely different. He deals with injustice. It's his main job. He cannot help it. That is what he is there for. When he sees injustice happening, he addresses it. He rights the wrongs. When he sees wickedness, he eradicates it. And when he sees the righteous, he supports and encourages them. That is what a good king does, and that is how his kingdom looks. This is an important thing for us to know, not only about life in God's kingdom now here on earth, but also life in eternity in God's kingdom. There is no place in a good kingdom for the works of darkness, as Paul calls them. A good king cannot stand the works of darkness. He sees how they work against God's law, how they work against the goodness that he's supposed to promote. There is no place for works of darkness, and that is what makes a kingdom great and glorious. People often think that kingdoms are great and glorious when everybody's got all the money they could ever want, when there's peace and prosperity, when there are no enemies knocking at the doors, when everyone's happy and content. But that is not what makes a kingdom prosperous. That's not what makes a kingdom great and glorious. It is when righteousness prevails, when goodness is treasured, when justice is carried out. That is what makes a kingdom great and glorious. So the hope for today is this, that your king, that king who is good and who intends to found such a kingdom on goodness and righteousness and justice, he is coming. So you look around you at the world and you see all kinds of misery, all kinds of misfortune, all kinds of injustice, all kinds of unrighteousness, and the hope for you today, the hope is that Christ is coming to restore goodness, to bring about justice, to let righteousness reign. Now the problem with hope is that it is one of those words that gets so easily co-opted by our world. It's kind of like love. Everybody uses the word love to mean whatever it is that they want it to mean, or faith, or believe. Maybe you see these kinds of sentiments around Christmas time. Just have faith, just believe. Those kinds of generic hopes, those kinds of generic sentiments really don't do us any good. Believe in what? Hope in what? Have faith in what? What are we looking forward to? This is important to say because like those ten bridesmaids, 
we all grow weary, but we tend, we tend to grow weary of the wrong things as we are hoping and waiting and believing. We tend to grow weary of the wrong things, like a child who has been given some chores to do and grows weary of doing the good work that his parents have given him to do. I always have to do everything around here. I'm so sick of having to clean my room. I'm weary. Of course, a kid would never say that, but I'm weary of doing all of these things. That's growing weary of the wrong things. Paul says, in fact, let us not grow weary of doing good. Or like Israel, Think about Israel as they were marching through the wilderness, having come out of Egypt, having been rescued from slavery, from oppression under the hand of Pharaoh. Israel, being fed by God in the desert with manna from heaven, they grew weary of that manna. They grumbled about it. They said, this isn't what we want anymore. We want something better. We want something tastier. We wish we had that meat and those vegetables that we had back in Egypt. They grew weary of the wrong things. They grow weary of the things that their flesh detests. We grow weary so easily of the wrong things, of not getting what we want. We grow weary of disappointment. We grow weary of boredom. We grow weary of frustration. We grow weary of all of the things that the headlines tell us we should be concerned about. We grow weary of all the sensationalized news in this world. We grow weary of disease, but not the sin sickness that causes all the disease. We grow weary of loss, but not the cause of that loss, sin and the devil. We grow weary of the things that we do not like in this life, but we do not grow weary so easily of the things that we should. Weariness of the things that we find distasteful, or the things that bother us, or the things that make us uncomfortable, that's not the kind of weariness that Christ is coming to cure. Instead, this is what he is coming to cure, weariness of sin. Weariness of unrighteousness. Weariness of our own hearts. Weariness of our own frailty. Being tired of how poor and miserable we are as sinners. That is what Christ is coming to free us from. Weary of selfishness and vanity. Weariness of being anxious and not trusting as we should. Doubting God's love. Weariness of compromising or of worrying about what others think. Weariness of coldness towards others for whom Christ died. Weariness of being quarrelsome or discontent. Weariness of our lustful and greedy hearts and our envious thoughts. Weariness of gossip and our slanderous words. Those are the kinds of things that we should grow weary of. Those are the kinds of things that we should eagerly long to be freed of. Those are the kinds of things that Christ teaches us about in his law so that when we hope in him, when we look forward to the coming of our king, we know what he will rescue us from. Inspect your hearts and see. See all that Christ is coming to free you from. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the hope of Advent. This is the hope of your lives as you look forward to the return of your King, that he is coming to free you from sin. He's coming to make righteousness reign in your hearts. Otherwise, how could you and I enter into his kingdom, a kingdom in which no righteousness, no unrighteousness can be, in which no works of darkness can exist? How else could we enter into his kingdom unless he were coming to free us from sin, to bring righteousness to reign in our hearts? That is what he has come to do, to rule over your hearts, to take captive your thoughts, to make you like him, to turn you into little Christs 
who shine like his light in this world so that you are fit for his kingdom. Listen again to what Jeremiah says. Behold, the days are coming, he says, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. This is your hope. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name. This is the name by which you'll be called. This is your king. The Lord is our righteousness. Behold, your king is coming. He's coming to give his life for you, to die on the cross for you, to pour out his blood for you. He's coming to fill your hearts with his humility and love. He's coming because you are his most precious treasure. He's coming to give you every good thing. The Lord is your righteousness. Put your hope in him. To him alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.